Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Blood is vital. Transporting hormones, nutrients, and oxygen and removing waste products. But for all its complexity, some animals see it simply as food. While we grow up learning to protect our precious fluid from bloodsuckers like vampire bats, leeches, and bedbugs, they don't have a monopoly on their gory craving. Unexpected animals, from snails to birds to moths, have come to join the feast. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Raven Forrest Riscalzo, your host. This is episode 43, Unexpected Vampires. Listener Sophia Soya asked, Are there animals that we might never suspect drink blood, but do? Before we get to the strange and unexpected world of freak blood feeders, I have a big announcement to make. We are adding another member to the Tiny Vampires team. This show has always been about giving you folks the scientific discoveries that you want to hear about in a practical and easy-to-digest way. Unfortunately, although science is pretty universal and scientific discoveries are made by researchers all over the world, the information is almost always shared in English. This is why I asked Raquel to join me and host the show in Spanish three years back. Now, a good family friend of mine, Wei Sun, is going to be hosting the show in Chinese. All three of us are completely volunteers, and we make no money at all off of the show. Uh, we love science and love sharing it with curious-minded people. I'll be doing a special episode with Wei soon so that you guys can meet her and feel free to tweet any questions for her at tiny vampires pod or send them through the contact section of the webpage and speaking of the webpage i've been working a lot on it adding the other languages in a more detailed way so enjoy the new tinyvampires.com and send us all of your questions Okay, on to the wonderful world of surprising vampires. Blood feeding is a more common lifestyle than you might think. Roughly 30,000 species of animals do it. And although we think of arthropods as the primary culprit, considering they include mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, bedbugs, arthropods make up about half of the blood-sucking ranks. 
much of the remaining half is probably taken up by different types of parasitic worms, like leeches and hookworms. But there are a select few animals that you might never suspect based purely on their appearance or your normal assumptions about how animals like them live. The vampiric lifestyle has evolved so many times, up to 21 in arthropods alone, because it's a good source of food. Blood is abundant. Find any vertebrate and you found blood. Most blood drinkers don't take enough on their own to kill their food source, and the prey is constantly making more. So, unlike meat eaters, a blood feeder can go back to the same source over and over again. For some, like lice, they just take up residence on the host, allowing for generation after generation to live and die on the same blood source. Blood is also pretty nutritious, packed with protein, water, and salt, plus some fats and sugars. Using blood for food or drink isn't all good, though. There's definitely a too-much-of-a-good-thing problem going for drinking blood. Digesting the vast amount of protein in blood produces a lot of waste that is high in toxic nitrogen. If a human consumed the equivalent of the amount of protein as a vampire bat, it would cause kidney failure from the sheer overload of nitrogen waste. One amino acid in blood proteins, called tyrosine, has to be broken down quickly. In arthropods, like ticks and kissing bugs, dismantling their ability to break it down caused sharp tyrosine crystals to start forming, which ruptured their intestines and killed them. Even the iron that makes blood red can be too much. The iron has to be broken down and disposed of, or it builds up into toxic levels, a condition called hemochromatosis. This condition can also be caused by a genetic disorder. A friend of mine has it, and he actually has to donate blood often just to bring his iron levels down to stay healthy. Before we get too far into this, let's first talk about what we mean when we refer to an animal as a blood drinker. As usual in the natural world, it's not all that straightforward. There are many animals that feed on blood-derived body fluids, like mucus or urine or tears or sweat. There's an entire group of bees called sweat bees that use the sweat of other animals as a sort of sports drink. Like your stereotypical bee, they mostly feed on flower nectar and pollen, but they need salt and they get it from licking overheated mammals. They are very common bees. Regardless of where you live, you've probably seen one at some point. If you've looked down at a flower or your sweaty arm and seen a beautiful metallic blue, green, or purple bee and remarked about how cool it looked, that was probably a sweat bee. Okay, so I'm cheating. And I'm sure we can all agree that sweat and tears are not blood, and that sweat bees don't count as surprising vampires. But what about carcasses? Animals that you might not suspect take sips from the noxious pools of blood and other fluids that develop around decomposing carrion. While we're grossed out when a housefly lands on us, 
A butterfly alighting on our hand, or even our face, is considered adorable. But the thing is, they might have just visited the exact same corpse. While butterflies' delicate mouths evolved for lapping up nectar from flowers and so can't pierce skin, they are perfectly happy to slurp up pools of blood from around a corpse, a behavior with the disturbingly cute name of puddling. Although this is technically blood feeding, this blood puddle sipping probably isn't what Sophia was referring to when she asked about surprising vampires. I would lump them in with the Kenyan jumping spider that selectively eats mosquitoes that are full of blood. While they both do feed on blood, they aren't really doing any damage to the animal that they're feeding from, which is something that we kind of associate with vampires. So, we will move on to the complicated relationship between oxpeckers and their friends. Oxpeckers are iconic birds. You see them riding on the backs of rhinos and zebras in every photo you've ever seen of the African plains. They are the archetype of a mutualistic relationship. The story that is often told about oxpeckers is that they eat ticks and other parasites off of their large animal friends. The birds get a meal, the rhino gets a cleaning service, and everyone's happy. While this is a very sweet story, we now know the truth. Oxpeckers wait until the ticks are full of blood before they eat them. And by that point, not only has the blood loss already happened, but any disease the tick may have been carrying has already infected the mammal. If the oxpecker is a friend, they are the sort that bails you out of jail the day before you were supposed to be released anyway. Their relationship gets worse than that. Even when the oxpecker's favorite type of tick is available, the birds will spend just as much time pecking their host's skin open and feeding on their blood directly as they do picking off ticks. Some people come to the oxpecker's defense, saying that the hosts are still better off because the birds alert them to dangers like lions and hyenas. So, the jury's still out on whether they are more harm than good, but I think they are unambiguously vampires. Still, you might define a vampire as an animal that feeds only on blood. The oxpeckers don't solely survive on blood, after all. One animal that survives on nothing but blood that I had never heard of are the Clumbraria snails. They are snails that hang out under ocean shelves, with a lifestyle that is surprisingly similar to bedbugs. Parrotfish use rocky pockets and small alcoves in these shelves as a place to sleep at night. Once they're asleep, small snails with a tubular mouth that stretches up to three times as long as their shells poke up out of the sandy bed. The snail then often goes for weak spots like the eye socket, pierces the fish's skin, and sucks their blood. Unsurprisingly, they are also called vampire snails. Also like bedbugs, they stay hidden in place where they know their hosts always go and use chemical scents to detect when it's time to come out of hiding. And 
They use a chemical cocktail in their saliva to numb their victim and keep the blood flowing. Accessing a host's blood is not an easy feat. Skin has evolved to be tough, not to mention getting through the hair, scales, feathers, or even layers of mucus that animals use to keep their insides on the inside. Another marine full-time blood drinker is the tongue-eating louse. We'll get to the problem with their name in a minute. The tongue-eating louse avoids all of these defenses by going for the soft, fleshy tongue of rose snappers. It uses its sharp legs to puncture the base of the tongue, giving the parasite access to the fish's blood. It drinks so much of the blood that the tongue dies from lack of circulation. As you can see, there's no real tongue eating involved, although it does eventually fall off. And although they do drink blood like the lice we know and hate, it is also not a louse. It's an isopod, just like little roly-polies or pill bugs that you find in your garden. But the wildest thing about these nightmare pill bugs of the sea is that the rose snappers use the isopods, which stay attached to the stump, as a prosthetic tongue. Okay, as horrific as these surprising vampires might be, none of these animals that I mentioned so far bite people. So I'll conclude today with the vampire moth. No, it's not like the butterflies that we already talked about. These moths will actually poke a hole in you with their mouth and suck out your juices, if you give them a chance. While there are species of vampire moths on five of the sediment continents, they aren't super abundant. Normally, they eat fruits like citruses or strawberries or mangoes. Piercing these fruits has made their mouth parts sturdy, sturdy enough to puncture elephants. Unlike mosquitoes, the male moth is the vampire, not the female, sucking blood for up to 50 minutes in one go. If you're wondering what it feels like to get bit by one of these guys, it hurts. Their mouth parts look like tiny jigsaw blades placed back to back. When the moth tips his head side to side, one blade pushes past the other, pushing and drilling into the skin. The moth uses the same back-and-forth technique to pierce people as they do to pierce the thick skins of fruits, thrusting their mouths up and down through the same puncture hole at different angles to keep the juices flowing. In 2007, vampire moth expert Hans Benzinger was on a mission to figure out why moths that should be feeding on blood oranges started seeking out actual blood, especially since it's the males which don't need the extra protein to make eggs. His paper, Skin-Piercing Blood-Sucking Moth 6, describes his investigation and what he found. Hans collected both male and female moths. He split the moths into two groups. Some had access to blood and water, and the others had access to fruit and water. He used his own blood for the experiments, 
These males that he was feeding, who only had access to blood, only lived for five to six days, the same length of time as the females who only had access to water, which means that they weren't able to get any energy from the blood to keep them alive. The moths that had access to fruit, however, lived three to four weeks, which was assumed to be their natural lifespan. Taking a look at the feces of the moths that only fed on blood under a microscope showed Hans why. The red blood cells in the moth's feces were completely intact. Although they were drinking the blood, they apparently weren't capable of busting open the red blood cells to get at the nutrition inside. In other words, they were eating it, but they weren't digesting it. This leads to the question, if male vampire moths don't get any energy by digesting blood, why do they go through the trouble and risk getting swatted? Aside from the red blood cells, blood is effectively salty water, as we talked about before. But these moths live in an area with abundant water. So that left one last thing that the moths could be after. Salt. To test the idea, Banzinger used a technique called atomic absorption spectrophotometry to see how much sodium was in his blood before and after it took a trip through the moth's digestive tract. Our Australian listeners will be pleased to hear that this technique was one of Australian design. Although it sounds high-tech, how it works is pretty straightforward. Let's start with some basic facts. If you add energy to an element, it glows, and it gives off a particular wavelength of light. The wavelength is kind of that element's color fingerprint. For example, hydrogen glows red, and mercury glows blue. Another basic fact is that each element not only gives off its signature wavelength, but it also absorbs it too. The Atomic Absorption Spectrophotometry machine takes advantage of these two facts to measure the exact amount of an element in a sample. In this case, how much sodium is in Banzinger's blood and how much is in moth poop. First, the machine has a lamp, but the light bulb inside it is made using the element the researchers are looking for. In this case, a sodium lamp. It shines sodium's signature wavelength. That light goes through a flame. That flame is atomizing a sample, a few drops of Banzinger's blood. The light hits the sodium atoms in that sample and gets absorbed. Then, a detector on the other side of the flame picks up the light that's left over. None of the other elements, like carbon or iron or nitrogen that's in the blood, would absorb this light from the lamp. So, in the unlikely case that there was no sodium at all in his blood, 100% of the light that was created by the lamp would get picked up by the detector on the other side. The more sodium in the sample, the dimmer the light being picked up by the detector. I assume that Banzinger had totally normal human blood, which means a sodium level of about 9 grams per liter. 
When he ran the feces of the male moths that only fed on his blood through this same atomizing process, he found that the moths stored in their body 84 to 94 percent of the salt and pooped out the rest of the blood. So that led Banzinger to another question. The moths that were feeding on fruit lived just fine on just fruit. The moths don't need blood to survive. If the sodium isn't needed for the moths to survive, what are they using it for? Well, we don't know for sure. But we do know that a lot of male moths and butterflies go after salt. The going hypothesis is that they transfer the salt over with their sperm packets. The sodium is a gift thought to make up for the massive 75% loss of her salt reserves that happens when she lays her eggs. Males providing for their mate during sex has a very sweet scientific term called a nuptial gift. So there is your list of interesting animals that you wouldn't guess were vampires but are. Bloodthirsty moths, birds, marine pill bugs, and a surprisingly sneaky blood-sucking snail. Next episode, we will be diving back into the topic of mosquito fog trucks. But this time we'll be getting into their history, and the history of DDT. When we answer David Meyer's question, I used to play behind the mosquito fog trucks. What was in that stuff? If you have a question about Tiny Vampires, send it to us on Twitter at TinyVampiresPod, on Facebook, or through the Contact Us section of the webpage. Also, please let your friends and neighbors know that Tiny Vampires is now available in the three most spoken languages in the world. We work really hard to make this podcast fun fascinating and accessible, and would really appreciate you sharing it out to your friends. Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for the intro and outro music. Until next time, there are a lot of vampires out there, so do your best to keep your blood in your veins. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's conference takes place on April 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern or 3 p.m. London time. I, Raven Forrest Ruscalzo, will be appearing alongside David Crowther of History of England, Liz Cavart of Ben Franklin's World, Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative History, and around 40 other great content creators. With 24 hours of content on four simultaneous streams, there will be a lot to discover. Interact with your favorite hosts and fellow fans in an immersive conference experience. Tickets are $30, but as an even better deal, you can use the offer code TINY when you check out for an additional 10% off. Come and hang out with me and all of my independent podcasting friends. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.